0: Hey there, welcome to episode three of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie.
1: And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life.
0: On today's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Vonda Wright, an orthopedic surgeon and vitality expert.
1: Whether you're 22 or 82, there's things you can do to improve your longevity and live a happier and healthier life.
0: All right, let's get after it. Dr. Vonda Wright is an orthopedic surgeon and internationally recognized authority on active aging and mobility. She specializes in sports medicine and currently serves as the inaugural chief of sports medicine and orthopedics for Northside Health System in Atlanta. In addition to her surgical practice, Dr. Wright is a media content expert and regularly appears on national TV shows, including Dr. Oz and The Doctors. She is frequently quoted in Wall Street Journal, New York Times and USA Today and magazines such as Maxim, Fitness, and Runner's World, and numerous online publications. Dr. Wright has given over 200 media interviews in the last several years and has authored five books. You can find her on Facebook at Dr. Vonda and on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Vonda Wright. <laughs> Did we miss anything?
2: No. That's, glad- a, that's a long <laughs> read. I'm so sorry.
0: Glad, glad we covered it all.
2: <laughs> but it, it you missed the most important thing is that I was once Drew's doctor.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> Obviously, the greatest accomplishment. That
2: is, actually. I, sh- I need a certificate on the wall about that. So.
0: Yeah, nurse, nurse my poor shoulder back to health.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Aww. So I want to start off by asking you, in your career, what was the link between practicing as an orthopedic surgeon, which in of itself is a lot and a very impressive feat, and then going on to researching and investigating aging and longevity?
2: So, you know, my journey from a pure clinical practice to adding the research component in was actually simultaneous because, so like you guys, I went to an academic institution which really valued contributing to our fields, right? It's not enough just to learn from, from. in orthopedics, we say the giants whose shoulders we stand on. It's not enough to do that. What we must do as really smart people and curious people is to contribute back. So,, uh, my journey in research actually began when I was a nursing student because part of what, if you read deep enough into my history, you'll see, is that i I left college with a degree in biology, and I you know, I don't know what your you guys' degrees were in, but I can tell you that I found there was limited utility to a pure biology degree, so I had to go to some kind of professional school. So I initially went to nursing, where I immediately after college got another bachelor's and a master's in cancer nursing. Well, it was far enough back in the history of the world that AIDS research was new. Because in 1985 was the first time I heard about the disease AIDS. And then when I went on, graduated from college in 89, we were just starting to look at how to cure people with that virus. And and so I was involved in a a group of research looking at the role of nutrition. So from from that point on, every stage of my career was not only clinical, but answering questions that had no answers. And I got to tell you, from a little pride standpoint, who doesn't want to be the first person to know something in the world? Right, all through that nursing career, that cancer nursing career, where I eventually ended up being the uh, helping the chairman of the department run his fifty-two person lab. Right, so it was in my blood. So then, transitioning into orthopedics, it began right away. And so, my initial research in orthopedics was looking at stem cells, but not uh, stem cells that came from infants or de novo, but stem cells that we take from adult muscle tissues, because all of us are still teeming with stem cells at varying degrees of activity. And so we found that we were harvesting stem cells from muscle that could become anything. They could become cartilage and muscle and bone. They could be stimulated to become nerve and brain depending on the environment we put them on and what kind of growth factors we dumped on them which is the definition of a stem cell. I mean, it's pluripotent. So look at me getting all excited. Even though I don't really do much stem cell research anymore, uh, there is really something to knowing something first and contributing back. So when I was done with my orthopedic training and began thinking about how am I really going to take the next step to change this world, because it's very important to do what I do every day manually with my hands, right, fixing things that are broken, but i wanted to make a bigger impact so i began thinking about the way we age in this country and there's actually a myth that you have to go from the vitality of youth where you guys are now down some slippery slope to this decrepit place of frailty where you know we're just waiting to you know pass on well my research and the research of many other people interested in this subject have found that we actually have a choice we can be healthy, vital, active, joyful to the very last minute or close thereto if we just make choices that are meaningful. So, you know, I'm never giving this up. There, you know, I'll, as careers transition, sometimes you get to different places, but I'll never give up this quest to how to live better as we age.
0: That's awesome. So that's, that's like that sounds like really great news. Actually, for all my friends that get out of bed, and like, oh, I have bad knees, I have a bad back, I feel like I'm fifty years old.
2: What I, at I, twenty I, something, dudes? We got to get these kids in line, <laughs> right?
0: I know we got to get them. Got to get them healthy. But that being said, what are some habits? Like, what are some of the bad habits that people at, like mine and lives age have that we can start working on now, so that by the time you know we're 35, 45, 55. Like we're feeling better than we the path we're set out to be on right now.
2: Well, here's the here's something that I would love for um Do you guys consider yourself millennial generation or the generation younger? Where where do you fall in that?
1: I think we're in that awful, weird, awkward in-between. Actually, we're not really quite Gen Z. We're not really quite millennials. I was born in ninety-eight.
0: Yeah, I was ninety-seven.
1: We're on that cusp
0: So yeah, I think we're like right in between. I think we might actually be Gen Z.
2: Maybe, right? I have have 25-year-old twins, and so you're kind of around their age. And the point I want to make is that the very fact that you're asking that question is amazing, because we know that 80% of how we live and eventually die is predicated by the decisions we make every day. And in fact, not every day, every minute. There are 1,440 minutes in a day, if you care to know that. And when you're a resident, you're going to account for each and every one of those minutes. Well, the decisions we make are important, and but it's not the decisions to do less. I like to frame it as the decisions to do more, right? How can I be more healthy, vital, active, joyful versus, oh my God, she's going to tell me I can't go out and have fun or eat fatty foods or go drinking with my friends and I can't, you know, it's not like that we have the opportunity to choose 1,440 times a day to live more. So how do we do that? Well, uh, there are five pillars of health and we need more of each and every one of them. And these five pillars are outlined really well in a fascinating book called The Blue Zones, written by Dan Buettner. He is a social scientist who went out, And studied the nine communities in the world where we live longest. And on average, people in these communities live 114 years, not due to the miracles of modern science. It's because they live according to the five pillars and live more in each category. So number one, more social connections. There's a group of women in Okinawa in a small village, women and men, who begin their social connections when they are 5 years old when they go to kindergarten or whatever the equivalent is they're grouped in these pods their entire lives they meet in these pods every day through school through work through marriage and pregnancy and old age and and these 114 year old people still meet every day because we know that isolation and loneliness is detrimental to health so social connections so get out there and be with people in a safe way now that we live in a pandemic, but you know what I mean. Number two, we need more clean living. The negative way to say that is no toxins, because you quit smoking, quit vaping, quit filling our bodies with, but let's frame it in a positive way. Let's have more clean living. We are miraculously designed, this body of ours is a machine like no one has ever built. Why in the world would we make decisions to gum it up with toxins? I have no idea, no matter how good it makes us feel. So we need more clean living. That's number two. Number three, smart nutrition. We are what we eat, right? And so some days I am full on bacon, but most days I am lots of green leafy, lean protein, and very little sugar. Sugar, if we could eliminate refined sugar from our diets... We would be smarter, we would have less diabetes, we would have less aches and pains. Because when my patients ask me, okay, so you tell me smart nutrition, what is the one thing I could do? Because listen, we're all on a min max, right? A min max philosophy. What is the minimum I can do to get the maximum benefit? Well, ladies and gentlemen, could you please stop adding refined sugar to your foods? And so much of it is added to our foods in this country. 16 pounds a month. 16 pounds of added sugar you eat a month if you do not read labels. So you got to go read labels. You got to not eat fluorescent foods. I'm so distracted by Kellogg's right now. And if you could get the CEO of Kellogg's a cereal on your show, I would have plenty to say to him because his new waffle flavors are something like fluorescent green meringue or I mean look if go in the go in the shopping area they are fluorescent colors. No natural food in the history oh of this world. Gosh. Yes. No <laughs> wow. natural food, no clean food is fluorescent colors. So cut with the sugar and quit eating processed fluorescent food. So social connections, clean living, smart nutrition. And then could you just get out of these chairs and go move, right? So I like to across the years, I've, I've tried to brand myself as a mobility doctor because people have associated the word exercise with pain and drudgery. And I found out about 15 years ago that no one will listen to me if I say exercise. So I adopted the word mobility because it matter All your mobility matters, whether I'm not doing it right now, but sometimes I sit on an exercise ball at my desk and I'm bouncing around all day on my mobility ball because Any little mobility matters. Fidgeting matters, getting up and going to the copier 20 times a day, running up the stairs, and running on Lake Michigan. All of it counts. But what do we know about mobility? We know, and this is the why of why I'm an orthopedic surgeon. My why is that I know that by saving mobility, when I make you run again or make you walk again, or put stuff in your shoulders so that you can play and work and whatever, by saving your mobility. I am saving your life. There are 33 chronic diseases that people in this country die from that are put in a category called sedentary death syndrome. If you have one of those diseases, let's say you have diabetes, there's a pill for that. If you have heart disease, there's a pill for that. Hypertension, pill for that. Stroke, pill for that. There is only one thing that changes the natural history of the 33 chronic diseases, including cancer and Alzheimer's, that we die of. And that is mobility. So if you want to do one thing that's going to make the biggest impact in your life, you move around. And we learn how to associate pleasure with that, right? So that's my my goal now is to help people pivot from pain to pleasure when it comes to mobility. I've given you four of the five pillars right now. That if we just do those things, it really transforms our lives.
1: I remember growing up, you know, I think, especially when we were younger, there was so much advertisement that was targeted towards children with all the fun snacks and cereals and toaster pastries and all these crazy things. And I wanted nothing more, nothing more than for my mom to go into the grocery store and give me all the cereals, all the snacks, all the gummy bears. And my mom, my poor mom put up with this for so many years and refused to buy those things. And I was so angry. All I wanted was to have a Lunchables for lunch. I wanted, that was my greatest ambition as a second grader was like, please just give me these, these little boxes because all the, all the kids had them.
0: And everyone wanted to trade with you too, because you'd, you'd have something like a little goodie and everyone wanted to trade with you and like, Ooh, I have a ho or a Twinkie or something like that.
2: So there's yes, like, like social implications of junk food, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. You, like when you're like, what, seven, eight, nine years old, it's
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's and it's oh, it's like a it's like money, right? It's like it currency. was like money. It was like currency. Like currency. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I just I never appreciated, and to this day, my mom is really cognizant and aware and and particular about the types of foods we have in the house. Um, I think Drew can attest to this. We have a very clean kitchen, and I never appreciated that until now because she was so stubborn, for lack of a better word, about these types of things and refused to buy. You know, the the crap, for lack of a better word, that was in the snack aisles for kids. And I'm so glad she didn't because it's so What How smart is your mother? The smartest person I know. You just have to call (laughs) her and say, You are so smart. Well,
2: you know what? I think that my daughters could probably second what you said because I never fed my children juice, right? Juice is pure sugar water. Why are we giving our babies juice? And when mothers say to me things like, my kids are so picky eaters. All they want to eat is chicken tenders shaped like dinosaurs and sugary thing. And I'm not judging mothers. Mothers have enough judgment on them. It is hard to be a mother. It's one of the joys in life, frankly, but it's hard. But my, my retort is... I taught my daughter. My, I have a 12-year-old. I taught her how to eat. You know, who is she going to learn from besides me? She never got sugary things. She only got broccoli off my plate. I never fed them baby food. Actually, I, I fed her off my plate, which was generally clean. Now that's not to say that today she doesn't ask me for Eggo waffles, which I refuse her, or doesn't had didn't also ask me for a lunchable because it was social currency. But my message is children will imitate what you do. If you have a little kid with you and you're down on the living room floor doing planks and foam rolling and push ups or whatever you do to maintain your mobility, I guarantee you, your toddlers will be on the floor with you. And it's the same with food. So we have a vast influence on everyone we touch concerning their health. I'm so, I would love to meet your mother. She's so smart to have trained. You that way because it, the decisions we make as parents, and I gotta say this, and it's not for more mother's guilt from the minute of conception through the entire 10 months of gestation. Through, I mean, those, there are some researchers at McGee Hospital in Pittsburgh which would contend to you that from the minute of conception to the nine months of our birth, nine or 10 months of our birth, that predisposes our health for a lifetime because we are genetically predisposed by what happens in utero. So the decisions we make as parents are even more important before we even realize there's a little person around, right? Oh, the guilt, the the burden. The but pressure. The pressure.
1: <laughs> but uh, just, wow, how important it all is. So as a physician, you have a really unique role, of course, to influence people to make better decisions and to live more and to live better. But that responsibility can kind of fall on anybody. I think even, you know, anecdotally, when I was in college and in a sorority, we would do, you know, health events together, whether it was like a soul cycle class, things like that. And the more the people around me made better health decisions, the more likely I was to, you know, if everyone was going out and doing, you know, going to go get fast food uh, versus going for like a healthy Sunday brunch, I was more likely to lean whichever way my friends were going. So how can we, as individuals, whether it be kind of just as a human being or within our respective professions, encourage people to make those better decisions. And how, how important do you think is that social influence in the long run? I
2: love this question. So number one, zip code matters. It actually does matter in terms of your health, where you live, who you hang around with, what decisions everyone's making. It is impossible to stay healthy. If you are surrounded by friends, family, family, neighborhoods where no one is healthy sometimes because there's no great food around in every major city in this country including atlanta where i am pittsburgh where i just left and chicago there are places called food deserts where you cannot find fresh food within five miles right so where do people that live in food deserts get their food they get them at bodegas which are those little stores on the corner that are so crowded with junk food you can't even get in, or 7-Elevens. So neighborhood matters, right? So those of us who have a platform of influence can really speak out to how we can enable whole communities of people to have the choices that they need to live better, because sometimes there are no choices. So that's number one, when there are no choices. Number two, Within our own social groups, if we have the opportunity to make choices, we can influence our groups by helping to normalize health, right? We can normalize unhealthy living, which is, you know, in my college on Sunday nights, uh, there was no dining service, so we had to fend for ourselves. And whether we normalized to go to fast food and high fat and calories or whether we normalized to go, which is what we did, to go to Olive Garden because you could get all the salad for a very small price because we were college kids, right? That's how we normalized healthy living. So that's how you guys can normalize each other's behavior surrounding healthy living. Now, as we grow our platforms of influence, and Drew, I say this not because I hate men, but these are the facts, Jack. Women make 80% of all the healthcare decisions in this country for themselves and everyone they touch, their friends, their spouses, their co-workers, their neighborhoods. So we sit in a powerful place of influence so that, you know, I founded a nonprofit called Women's Health Conversations to entertain, but more importantly, educate and inspire women to understand the powerful role we pulled just like I influence the diets of my children, or I influence every person I touch in my practice, or when I'm out doing all this media and social media and book writing, listen, I'm not trying to have more things to do, but I'm trying to expand the influence that I have to help people have health. So each one of us has an individual has an opportunity to influence our neighborhoods our workplaces, our homes. And I believe that one home at a time, we can change the health of a city. And ultimately, by changing the health of our environments, we can change the health of our whole country, which will change our culture and will change our economy. Because you know that we spent a, spend a disproportionate amount of money in this country providing health care in the last two years of life. And I'm not saying that we should not save people in the last two years of our lives. What I'm saying is that we should exercise our ability to influence health for the 80 years prior to that, right? But the special thing I'm going to say to the two of you, because you have much broader networks than the average Joe, is that you have an exponential ability to use your platform to change the health of this country as scientists and as uh, future doctors. Because I have said this from the dais and I'm saying it to you, Liv, that for me, it's not about the little black dress. I could care less if I ever fit back into a little black dress because of the dress. I care that I remain a size four, which I have been since I was in college, because that means that I have not accumulated the pounds of fat that are going to produce estrogen, that are going to give me breast cancer. That's how I put it all together. The superficial part is nice. It is not the why. The why is health and living more in the 1,440 minutes I have a day to do so.
0: I think that is so incredibly key. Like people our age, the or like younger millennials, older Gen Z, I don't think our generation really gets the, the why. Um, and maybe that has to do with like some invincibility complex or we just don't have that experience yet in the real world to like understand that like. Our time here is limited and valuable, and we have to make the most of it. And when you were saying how women make eighty percent of healthcare decisions, I was just smiling and nodding the whole time because I, it, it's it's true. Like my, my mom would coordinate all the appointments, like make sure we we got to where we needed to be, and for our whole family. So like um at like at the end of the day, so so cool. Trans- Can I talk
2: about millennials for a minute? Yeah, go. For it. I'm like hijacking your podcast, but so I was interested. You know, there, let's put some stats out there. There's 77 million baby boomers, right? So that's all your grandmas and grandpas. And they were born right after the Second World War. And it's from that generation we learned how to do health better. And we did watching and waiting techniques, right? Like what happens to you if you eat bacon every day for 70 years? So that is where a lot of the current health has come. And we haven't done a great job taking care of them, but we've learned a lot. But I wanted, through Women's Health Conversations, to understand what the most powerful generation in the history of the United States wants from their health. There are 110 million millennials and then the people who are just their younger brother and sisters like you. And I thought to myself, there is no way that they view health in the same way that the baby boomers or my generation did. So I did a little market research. We had these Traditionally, they would have been called think tanks. I called them action tanks because millennials aren't just about sitting around thinking. Millennials are about doing. So we called these action tanks, and I, and I held several of these. And from these action tanks, we came away with seven ways that health needs to be different for the people we are serving in this age group. And it was really surprising uh, these seven things. Then I'm producing these. I'm releasing these in October as a ten blog set on my own webpage, drvonderwright.com, as well as the Women's Health Conversations page. So it'll be all over social media. And, and if you want to just key into it, just follow me at a drvonderwright. But some of the points we found were that millennials want to be responsible for their own health before just calling up a doctor to figure out what's gone. They're gonna go to Doctor Google. They're gonna find out. They're gonna ask their friends, right? And that means that they wanna be in control. They do not wanna be told what to do, uh, which is great. I want people to take control of their own health. But they also want health delivered in a calm, soothing environment. They do not wanna walk into a doctor's office that feels like a machine, right? They want a more mentally soothing place. Another thing we found out, and I think we're seeing this in society right now, is that baby boomers would not talk about mental health. We're all tough as nails. We're going to toughen it up and we're going to suffer because of it. Well, millennials are really keyed into the fact that we are body, brains, and bliss. We are a physical body, we are a physical brain, and we are mood or bliss part. So, And everything is intimately connected, down to the 4 trillion gut bacteria that we all have. It's the largest nervous system in our body. I mean, it's connected to our brain, right? So millennials are really keyed into that. You know, what's really interesting that we found out that for baby boomers, sex and reproduction is just that, sex and pleasure, right? But for millennials, it is social justice. It is mental health. It is pleasure, but it is so much more. It is policy making. So I am really encouraged by what we're seeing coming up in you guys' generation, because somehow you guys have gotten the message that you can make decisions which infect you in the long term and that you want more and you don't want to age down some decrepit slide. So I hope that more people pick up on the message we're having today is that the decisions you make today are incredibly vital going forward. But you know what was most interesting to me? I asked them, well, all these things you want, the mental health services, the yoga, the the massage, the acupuncture – Who's paying for that? That is all really expensive. Well, you know what the millennials said to me? They said, we are willing to pay 25% of our disposable income above and beyond health insurance in order to ensure that we live the way we want to live. So you guys are willing to put money where your mouth is. And that's really encouraging. So I'm so inspired by you guys.
0: Well, I'm glad that we can be uh, you know a positive beacon in healthcare. That being said, Quick question about the above and beyond. Does that include things like going on like a wellness retreat or like spending money for gym memberships? It it, does it encompass all that. It does. Okay.
2: Would you guys go on a wellness retreat? Is that something you would build into your lifestyles? I don't know.
1: To be entirely honest, I've never more seriously considered something like that than right now. I think given what the past couple of months have looked like for a lot of people. I think a lot of us are in need of a nice little wellness retreat in the near future. And something that I think is really interesting is, is we have more access to information than we ever have in the history of humankind. You know, it's almost battering at times. Like, I remember when the keto diet first was popularized. First, there was the argument between keto and low fat, and then the high carbs and the low carbs and this and that. And there's so many research studies and differing opinions based on what is stated as fact and, you know, research-supported information. So I think it is really interesting because we are so receptive to that as people in our generation, and, and so many of us are on social media, and then social media plays into that too, where you have these little cute graphics being posted without any source being listed, but people share them around as if it's coming straight out of the mouth of a physician. So something that both excites me and scares me as a as a researcher is that I have the ability to influence so many people with this kind of information, but I think it is so important and more important than ever that it's communicated in a way that's clear and also honest. I think there's a lot of, not dishonesty per se in in science nowadays, but so many conflicting opinions that aren't well-spoken and well-communicated to an average audience that isn't going to sit through a 12-page paper and figure out the nitty-gritty of a study before they really draw their own conclusion. So that kind of communication, I think, is really important also for how our generation and future generations treat their health. So I'm kind of curious to see how that goes.
2: Well, I think you make a really, really important point that you have to consider the source, right? And within academia, you know that no paper ever gets published without peer review, without high levels of critique, right? Some never get published. But what also that does in translating information to the general public is it makes it inaccessible because most of the general public doesn't know how to find PubMed or Ovid or any of the other, you know, research databases. So they're just left to rely on whoever writer wants to write something and they may or may not have any connection to the real data. So I think podcasts like this can do a great job at, you know, as you progress in this and have different experts on, but, you know, choosing subjects, you guys are both, very well versed in the research process, you know, weeding out the info for people and then citing your sources, right? Because you would be doing a huge public service by vetting information for people. And in fact, sometimes when I've published my own work, I have sacrificed something called impact factor, which is, the more heady, the fewer people actually reading the paper because the journal is so like deep, no one can even understand the information, the higher the academic impact factor, which helps professors get tenure. Nobody reads that except the 300 people studying that in the whole world, right? But the whole world needs that. So even in my own research, I've made the impossible decision to publish one study in particular on lean muscle mass, on how chronic exercise can preserve uh, youthful levels of lean muscle mass into your 70s and 80s. I chose to put that in a less prestigious journal that would send out a press release, because I wanted as many people in this country to know. And you know what, it worked. Hundreds of thousands of people downloaded the pictures from that paper. But that's a hard academic decision I made. But I think that more smart people like you that are then accessing public channels can help the rest of us and vet the information because it's so important. I mean, I love that you think it's important.
0: Yeah. Well, like that logic and line of thinking is one of the exact reasons that we wanted to start this and because we felt that we want to take the the heady stuff and try and boil it down to take home points and messages. And, you know, we've talked about You know, a good amount this last thirty or so minutes of you know everything from women making most of the healthcare decisions to you know aging is not a decline to frailty. That being said, what is like one big takeaway that you would want our listeners to hear, or just the like the general public to to know from either the last like thirty five minutes or something new?
2: Well, if we're looking for you know what is the take home message that your listeners, whether they're scientists or whether they're the general public can take, is that this thing we started with, Drew and Liv, is that aging is not an inevitable decline from vitality to frailty, and that we have an individual and social responsibility, whether thinking about our our own bodies, our family's bodies, or how illness affects the gross national product and where we spend our money in this country, we have a responsibility for our health. In health insurance, there's this concept called the deductible, which is the money you owe before the insurance kicks in. Well, in real life, we have a health deductible. It is the part of our health that we are responsible for, whether it's the decisions we make to live the five pillars of health we discussed, whether it is educating our families and everybody we touch by the platforms we hold, or whether it is simply keeping healthy enough That we do not burden society with the health bills that are inevitably going to come because we chose in our youth not to take care of ourselves because we are living in the United States. And whether you like it or not, we do take care of our people because if you have no health insurance, every hospital has a system where they will provide free health care. Every hospital, no matter what you're told, if you show up and you need care in the emergency room, you will be given care, right? We have an individual responsibility for health, whether you just recognize it or you put something on it like it's your health deductible. But that means that we are a powerful force in our own health and in the health of everyone we touch, whether you're someone in fashion, someone in business, or someone in science. It's all the same. We're all human beings. That's my message to you.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really had a great time having you on the show. And I'm ready to run through a brick wall.
1: You gonna end up with another surgery. Drew, watch out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drew, please don't do that. My friend, don't do that. <laughs> and before we end this, I want to remind everybody that you can also find Dr. Vonda on com. So be sure to check that out for so much cool information. Drew and I were both scrolling through that website the other day. And... I was just blown away. I was very fascinated and very excited as someone who is also a woman entering the field of science. It made me excited for what potentially just one person can do and how big of an impact we each can individually have. And I think you're an astounding example of that type of influence. So I'm so honored to have spoken with you today. So thank you.
2: Thanks, you too. Bye-bye now.
0: All right, all right, all right. That was another heck of an interview i really enjoyed that personally and just kind of reflecting on it thinking about when it comes to lifestyle and its interconnectedness um to various social factors in our lives there's really truly a lot to unpack i feel like we could talk about it for probably a several episodes definitely but what she mentioned about those pillars of health really resonated with me and i really liked the actionable items that she kind of gave us that can change the trajectory of our lives in terms of vitality and living h- longer, happier lives.
1: Right. And, you know, the first one, which was social connections, I think is a really difficult one these days as we're all, you know, sitting on Zoom and taking online classes. But it reminded me of the science of well being class that was pretty popular on Coursera. It's that Yale class that was made, you know, available for free. And that was a big point that was mentioned in that class as well is how important. Social connections are not only to our health, but to our happiness and to our genuine happiness compared to a lot of the things that we think make us happy. That's such a big one that that really, truly, genuinely does influence our well being and our and our happiness. And there was a study mentioned in that course by David Myers at Hope College in two thousand that actually found that people with close social ties are happier, but also more likely to survive fatal illnesses and are less vulnerable to premature death. Which I thought was really interesting because. We tend to take those things for granted, right?
0: Unbelievable. Like, okay, we get it. You're happier. I mean, that totally makes sense. You're around people. You feel connected. You feel like you have a purpose. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs for our psych nerds out there. But the surviving fatal illnesses part and like better vitality and resistance to like chronic disease, that's that's mind-blowing.
1: Right? Right? Like, we are literally saving each other's lives, Drew, right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no one else I'd rather have saved my life.
1: Oh, stop. Stop it, you. And, you know, and the second one, just moving through them, the more clean living and, and less toxins. I actually kind of went on a big internet search after we interviewed Dr. Wright. And it turns out that these toxins are pretty much everywhere. I mean, from cosmetics to self-care products to our produce to plastic and lead and the paint in our house. I mean, you could go on and on. So I think, you know, I'm not going to prescribe any official advice here because I don't think I know enough about this to really say that. But just starting with a clean sweep of your life and kind of analyzing what you're putting in your body and on your body is a good place to start there because, gosh, those things are everywhere.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I think what you mentioned is, is a great place to start, like taking account of like where you're at. And I think that with a lot of our shortcomings in these pillars, like that's a great place to start and looking at kind of taking account of your life, your habits, your day to day, like what's going on? Like, am I happy with, you know, what I'm eating, what I'm doing, how I'm spending my time? I think generally just like a good, good rule to live by, but that's just personal preference and experience.
1: Right, right. Because how can you make change if you don't know what your baseline is? So I think that's that's a really good point.
0: Totally. So that brings us to this third pillar that Dr. V was talking about, and that's smart nutrition. Um, you know, what we're putting in our bodies and how we're managing that. And it, when she said that, it brought to mind this lecture I had about a week ago, and there was a study referenced in it entitled "Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and Mortality: A National Prospective Cohort in Spain." Now, this comes out of the Mayo Clinic, and they looked at people in Spain over a seven to eight-year time frame, and they found that those who had a diet comprised um, of more than thirty-three percent. So more than a third of their diet comes from ultra processed foods. They had a 44% higher all cause mortality risk compared to those people who had ultra processed food intakes of under 15%.
1: That's crazy. And Drew, I know, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know this, Drew is a big fitness guy. And, you know, as I prepare for Miss USA, I, I don't think I've ever looked more closely at the types of foods I'm putting in my body, but you know, you feel better Truly, I feel so much better when I'm paying more attention to what I'm eating and not just, it's not a matter of how much, but like the quality of it. And that's just day to day, right? And, you know, I wake up feeling more energized. I wake up feeling just better and more ready to take on the next day. If you think about how those effects accumulate over time, I mean, I can totally see, and it's really no surprise that what you consume makes such a big difference about your long term health right? Because just day to day, I notice the difference. Don't get me wrong. I love a good ice cream. I love a good Portillo's chocolate cake. But man, you know, like long run, I don't think I could function as well. And there's so much expected of us at our age, you know, day to day, we're gonna burn out if we're not ready to take on that day, because of what we're consuming. And it's such a complicated issue. And we could really, again, another thing that we could talk about for episodes upon episodes, but I actually hope we do an episode on this. I, mean, I think nutrition and such an interesting and complex topic i could just i could go on and on forever
0: yeah i'd love to dive into it in in terms of you know general vitality perspective from a performance perspective and just like anecdotally um when i'm eating healthier cleaner making my meals more often versus going out like just making better decisions in terms of what i'm putting in my body like i feel better i have more energy. I don't have that 3 p.m. slump in the middle of the afternoon. You kind of don't really recognize it at first because it just kind of happens, and then all of a sudden, like you turn around, and you're like, "Wait, I don't crave this. I don't crave this. Yeah, you know, I don't really care for 11 p.m. bag of popcorn with a like, two liter of soda. Like, no, I like not. No,
1: right. You just."
0: When you're eating, you know, chicken, salmon, eggs, lean meats, veggies.
1: Oh, the best. The homies. Yeah,
0: it's you don't you don't crave that that processed food as much. Not only does like healthy living make you get more energy, like you you feel better moving around in the gym. I feel like I have more exercise. And that is like the fourth thing she said is, you know, you got to move. And that's not. And that doesn't mean you have to like be working out or like be some crazy athlete. That's just like Dr. Wright said. She just has her like medicine ball. She sits at, at her desk.
1: I love that idea.
0: Honestly, great idea. And I might have to uh, invest in a medicine ball and get her to this chair because my back, since you know, online classes, brutal, destroying it.
1: Right. That's. I think that's such a big change that so many people are going through right now. Is we have never been glued to our screens more than we are now. As if we weren't glued to our screens enough. Here we are sitting through hours and hours of Zoom classes, and I'm even thinking about my coding. I'm in a coding boot camp next week, you guys. Um, (laughs) And I will be coding on a laptop, not moving around for upwards of six, seven hours a day. That is not healthy. You know, it's, it's really not. So I think I'm going to, I've talked to Drew about this. I'm going to schedule in my walk time as if I would be walking to a class in between my virtual classes, because I think there's no other way I can give my body that movement that it needs. And I'm currently reading uh, Drew's notes that he added onto this document, and he couldn't have said it better when he said that ki- <laughs> King Julian likes to... <laughs> Drew, you cracked me up. You cracked me up even through a, through a screen, that King Julian, Julian likes to move it, move it. So, y'all, if you haven't seen Madagascar, go watch it. Go take the advice of King Julian. He said it best... When he said that he likes to move it, move it. And I think that's what we all need to do more of in our lives, especially these days when we're trapped, essentially, at home. We got to prioritize it because it's not even a matter of how you're going to feel today or tomorrow. It's how you're going to feel for the rest of your life. And I think if that's not reason enough to do it, I don't know what else is.
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. I, I, I have, to, I have <laughs> nothing to say. Nothing to say.
1: I left you speechless. Wow.
0: Not the first time. <sighs>
1: We're being so smushy today. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, you know, Drew, I learned so much. And I think, you know, she said it best when she said that every minute of each day, we have an opportunity to make a choice for ourselves. And that that really struck me. And I think that's something that I'm going to take with me for the rest of my life, because the little decisions we make do add up over time. And we have a long life to live. And why let it go to waste?
0: Oh, 100%. 100%. Shout out Dr. V for that.
1: That's a little meta, but I think worth thinking about especially now i've never thought more about my life generally than i have over the past couple of months and i've never appreciated it more
0: yeah i'm, I'm right there with you i'm the <laughs> same wavelength right now hey but you know this is a great episode really uh, enjoyed talking to dr v and getting her insight um but that is all for this week's episode everybody you can follow us on instagram at science and society to catch our new releases upcoming topics and our science shenanigans
1: And of course, be sure to tune into episode four coming out on September 21st.
0: And always peace, love, and silence.